Hey everyone, it's EK here. After you're done listening to today's episode, I want to encourage everybody to go over to our friends at Bad Taste Video Podcast. This week, I was a guest on their show, and we did quite the deep dive into heavy metal horror, punk music in horror movies, movies that are just metal in general, and we had a blast. So when you're done listening, head over there. You can check out the Bad Taste Video podcast everywhere you get your podcasts, or you can visit badtastevideo.com. Thanks for listening, and thanks for supporting our friends. Bye. Welcome back to another episode of Laser Graves. I am your co-host, E.K. Wimmer. Hey, E.K. Wimmer. I am Mariah Rose. How are you doing? Great. How are you? <laughs> Good. I'm a little frazzled. I was kind of behind on my preparation tonight, and I was multitasking, and I felt like mm-hmm. what I was juggling were flaming swords, and I Whoa. don't know how to juggle, so... I was... You're rarely frazzled, too. I Well, I just had a lot, but we're here now, and we're ready to go. It's interesting. When I think of you frazzled, I can think of like maybe four instances in the more than 20 years I've known you. <laughs> You're like a, a sleek black cat, always together, and I'm like the opposite. I'm the frazzled alley cat that like sticks her head out of a trash can. So to see you a, a slightly frazzled is actually that feels pretty together for me. So I, I'm on your level now. All right. Well, in full disclosure, I don't think that technically I was frazzled at all. I just think that I was um, a little busy with trying to get things ready. No, no, no. Don't backtrack. Okay. Well, <laughs> moonwalking out of that one. <laughs> <laughs> well, with a with an episode like this, it's always just, they're so daunting sometimes because there's so much information. Mm-hmm. Like when you cover something like rock and roll cowboys that nobody's ever covered and there's nothing known about mm-hmm. it, it's really easy breezy. You just watch the movie and talk about it. But with this, it's, there's generations of history. You, you want to get it right. History. Yeah, you, there's just a lot. And every time I, I'm researching an aspect, I'm like, oh, but what about that? And then I like go down another rabbit hole and... yeah. It's just a lot to prepare, but we are here and I am very excited to talk about this. So that's why I I just had so much fun stuff and I had to like reach a point where I'm like, okay, look, we'll just talk about what we feel like talking about. There's no way we can get into everything about this film. No, you know, and with something like this or anything, I'm like 8%. Um, tempted to just make up information. <laughs> totally. <laughs> and just teach everybody for not looking up their own information. But yeah. I didn't, guys. Or did I? Well, to be determined. Hmm. Well, we are talking about Clash of the Titans, uh, really a monumental film from the early 80s in the fantasy adventure sword and sorcery realm. We're an 80s podcast. If you're new to listening to us, thanks for tuning in. Mm-hmm. We do cover exclusively stuff from the 80s we're also time travelers so we are from the 80s that's true yeah we have a unique perspective Uh (laughs) i mean really all people born or lived in the 80s we're all time travelers on a spaceship called planet earth and not all who wander are lost (laughs) it's 
It's like the coexist bumper sticker. Ah, oh, the middle-aged woman bumper sticker. Yes, but they also have not all who wander are lost. <laughs> totally. There was a With peri- the, like, Jerry Parrish dancing. Yes, there was a period of time where you were like, I swear, all of the coexist bumper stickers are middle-aged women. And we started looking, and every single one we found was a middle-aged woman. <laughs> totally. <laughs> Almost all driving, what, Volvos? Like Subarus. Subarus, yeah, yes. Yeah, for sure. All right, well, now that we got that cleared up, mm-hmm. uh, before we jump into this beast of a film, do you have any thrift store finds? Oh, gosh, I'm sorry, but I just imagined a tramp stamp of not all who wander are lost. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> okay. I, you know why? Why that makes me even more sad is I bet you multiple people have that. I can only hope that there's also the dancing Jerry Bear with the top hat and the cane to go along with it. Okay, so I don't have a thrift store find. I have a desert find. Okay, that works too. Because I know everybody missed me looking for secondhand stuff in the desert. Yeah. So I, I did. W- I was <laughs> sure. I was walking in the desert with our daughters, and I saw somebody had dumped two big tires out there uh, because people are jerks. But I went back and collected these tires, and I painted them with some house paint we had laying around, and I've turned them into cool planters. Oh, those are really cool. My favorite part was you chose these two tones of blue. Mm -hmm. It's like a turquoise and then a darker blue. And our youngest daughter said, oh, you're painting it like your phone. And then you you pulled out your phone and the case is identical in the palette to the tires. Apparently I like blues. But not just like it was like you could have put your phone up against it and it would have just disappeared into the tire. should. Yeah. Anyway. Well, it looks really good. Good job. Thanks. What did you find? I actually found, I haven't found some VHS tapes in a long time. Uh, as far as thrift store segments are concerned, but I did stumble upon several boxes of tapes at a place and I got very excited. However, most of them were all junk, but I did come home with a a small handful of some that were really cool, mostly just some obscure 80s action, which isn't, I'm not huge into, but there are a few real gems out there. Mm -hmm. Like Avenging Force, if you want to go back to that episode and listen to... Mariah, try and get through that movie. You fell asleep only once that time, right? You know what? I would say early in our podcast, I fell asleep in about 50% of our movies. Yet you made it through Clash of the Titans, which was a two-hour drama. I don't fall asleep much anymore. Yeah, that's true. You're really engaged now. You got it down. Is that what's happening? Yeah. Yeah, you got it down. Well... I was digging through the boxes. I found some action, but then I did find a couple horrors. But one that I found had a pretty boring cover, but the title was awesome. So I was like, well, of course I'll grab it. Was mm-hmm. Satan's Princess. Whoa. Late 80s. We will cover this for sure because okay. I just bought it. You know, it was like 25 cents. Just a blind purchase. Absolutely. Went home, immediately put it on because I was like, I got to know what this is about. And it started off really pretty slow, like a crime cop drama looking for a, you know yeah it quickly turns and by the end of the film i'm not going to give anything away but i was like what did i just watch cool. this was awesome and i highly recommend it we'll cover it soon enough it's definitely laser graves material okay so yeah it was a good find i found a bunch of other tapes but that one really stood out for me all right so got lucky 
Well, good for you. You ready to talk about Clash of the Titans? Uh Uh-huh. This is like... You couldn't exist. We talked about this on our little Monsters episode where there are certain films where you just couldn't be a child of the 80s mm-hmm. without have seen that. Like, Yeah. You couldn't be a child of the 80s without seeing that film at some point, And this is definitely one of them. Yeah. It was one of those movies after a certain point, too, where it was on like USA and TNT on, you know, in their dead hours. So as a kid in like junior high or high school when you're home for the summer and it's like two in the afternoon totally and you're like whoa what am i gonna watch that was almost always on (laughs) what's almost always on so you saw it do you know when when you first saw it no i think i never actually until last night have have i watched it in its entirety i think i've watched i've absolutely seen the entire thing but i've watched it in bits and pieces overlapping Many, oh. many times. I don't think I've ever sat through the entire two hours. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. What about you? This film is very special to me. And actually, I failed to give a little shout out because this is a request episode yeah. from our friend and fellow podcaster Grizz over at the Bad Taste Video Podcast. Our, you should listen to Bad Taste. Yeah, there are troublemakers over there that uh, they're they're into all the nonsense that we are. But Grizz and I were talking one day and he was like, man, it would be so cool if you did Clash the Titans. And that's something that we've actually discussed wanting to do a lot. Yeah. And so I was like, well, shit, I'll just put it at the top of the list now. So this one's a shout out to Grizz. Um, Because like me, uh, he also grew up with it. And this, for me, was like crucial to my childhood. I'd say there were three three films in particular that I watched religiously as a child. What are they? Clash of the Titans was one of them. Okay. Escape from New York yep. was another. And The Goonies was the third. Okay, I could have guessed those. I watched those films on repeat through my entire childhood. Mm-hmm. The difference being um, Escape had a little bit of this effect on me just because of the, the uh, glider scenes and stuff. Mm-hmm. But Clash of the Titans, really, I will credit... <laughs> this is a hot take right now we're doing. Hot takes. I will credit this with being... One of probably the most influential pieces of art on my own artistic career that I went on to become an artist and a filmmaker and everything else was Clash of the Titans because I was obsessed with stop motion animation and miniatures and everything else because of Clash of the Titans. And after this movie, every film that came out afterwards, you know, all the way up through seeing things like Beetlejuice and stuff. Anytime there were miniatures, I was completely drawn to it. And I thought that's what I was going to do with my life. And it all stems back to Clash of the Titans. Wow. And specifically Ray Harryhausen, which we'll spend a lot of time on. I collect a lot of sword and sorcery and fantasy films. And this for me, whether it's the best made or not, this will always be it's my number tier. one. Yeah, this is absolutely top tier. Yeah. So I'm very excited to talk about this okay. one. This came out in 1981. And it was directed by Desmond Davis, who had done some films in the 60s and then by the 70s had gotten into TV movies. And he had done a lot of kind of Shakespearean actors and stuff in TV movies. So that's why they really wanted to bring him on board, because especially with Mm -hmm. all the gods, these were like (laughs) literally titans of cinema that were cast in those roles. yes. And so they wanted somebody who could really work with those types of actors. So he was directing it. It was written by a guy named Beverly Cross, and he was married to Maggie Smith, who oh yeah is also in the film. Beverly can be a man's name. I know when I first saw the name, full disclosure, because I'm not familiar with this guy as a writer. 
I was like, awesome, a woman wrote this. And then it was like, he got his start. And so it wasn't. Huh, okay. Yeah. I, are he and Maggie divorced or is he just he dead? He is dead. Um, I don't know if she's still alive. Yes. She is. Professor McGonagall is still alive. <laughs> well, he died. But no, um, they that was like his third wife or something. And they stayed married all the way up until his death. Okay. So third he was married. Charm. To, yeah, Mag- Maggie Smith, who's in this film as well. And then we won't spend a lot of time right now because we'll be sprinkling it throughout. But the effects were all done by Ray Harryhausen, legendary animator, mm-hmm. innovator, and really, you know, the godfather of stop motion animation yes. and special effects. This was his very last film before he hung up his his animated cap. And he, he went big and then he went home. <laughs> true, true. I actually think he bowed out at the right time, honestly. And he probably saw it and was like, okay, this, yeah. is, this is where I should stop. This is also notable because this was the only film that he had assistance on. Whoa. And it's because this was so monumental in scope that he was and like... And also he was so old. Yeah, well, and he was like, there's no way I can pull all this off. I've got to get yeah. some people in. So he brought some people in for this one. Perseus was played by Harry Hamlin. This was his first lead role. Boy, was he a hunk of man meat, huh? Mm. He's all tanned and big. He's got his Mick Jagger lips and his curly locks and his like loincloth. And yeah, I am sure this was a big draw for the ladies at the time. I recently, I don't even know. It's just, let's just put it in the quarantine pocket. But I saw a video of him cutting boxes up for recycling while his wife danced around him you know who his wife is yeah okay and i was like what has your life come to buddy i mean he looked happy enough good for him but it was just like huh okay he went on later to have a huge career on like law and order csi or one of those i feel like he's got to be i don't know his career at all well lovely locks mcgee was quite the hunk on set because he wooed over a certain actress and maggie smith (laughs) by the time no it wasn't maggie smith but by the time this was done uh, they had a baby on the way and they were married oh that was ursula andrus who played aphrodite she had a you know smaller role but did they have any scenes together no, she was just one of the goddesses, but she was, her big claim to fame was she was the very first Bond girl in Dr. No, she was Honey Rider, so. Was she pretty, she was older than him, right? She would have been a little bit older, I'd imagine, because he was, I think, 29 at the time when this she came looks, out. She looks, I mean, she looks middle-aged in this movie. You think so? I mean, obviously not if she had a baby, so. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how old she was, but okay, whatever. she'd have to be because Dr. No came out in the 60s. Yeah, I mean, you can have a kid in middle age. It's no, just yeah, I'm bit... sure there wasn't a, well, she she took one look at his loincloth and was like, maybe his, get me that. <laughs> maybe he's that virile that she just <laughs> looked at him and became pregnant. <laughs> I would not put it past him. <laughs> I mean, really, he was at his prime. Mm-hmm. Um, the other big one we cannot avoid talking about is the one and only Sir Lawrence Olivier, who uh-huh. was their big, big catch for this film. I actually think it was maybe Maggie Smith that roped him in to doing this. And he was late, late, late in his career, you know, monumental actor, thespian. Would you say he was a god among men? They all thought he was because yeah, he probably I read... thought he was. <laughs> Oh, boy, did he. He was throwing his weight around on set, too. How did he get this rap? I'm, like, 
it's too many generations removed. Well, he was in anything and everything. Sure, I, I mean, I remember him from stuff. But. Yeah, uh, he was just this monumental actor, and everybody wanted to work with him. So when they found out he signed on, yeah. I read time and time again, basically most of the major actors that they got, which were all really the gods, were their, their money draw. When they found out that Lawrence was in this, they were like, okay, I'm doing it too. Okay. Actually... Uh, Harry, the lead, Perseus, was also like, uh, I'm not passing up the chance to sure. work with this guy. He got on set, uh, Laurence Olivier did, and as was told by other actors, he was really throwing his weight around and kind of intimidating everybody and made it clear he didn't want to be there. He only worked. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me it was one day. This is not the fun fact. I'm holding on to that one, okay. but this is pretty funny. He only worked for a single week on this film and was paid at the time three hundred thousand dollars for a week's worth of work that he like half-assed it look i'm gonna say this Uh uh-huh it might be controversial (laughs) i think he's overrated well in this film he was their their big cash grab that's like seven hundred thousand dollars in today's terms that's a lot of money for one week I want to make that much. But you know week. what? That was smart, smart money on the table because it paid off tremendously to have yeah. him in there. Not uh, only because it yeah. roped in all these other actors, but, you know, the box office draw. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He, though, was really sick on set. Like, he was on his downs. I mean, he only lasted a few more years. I don't remember when he died, maybe like 88, 89, maybe. Sure. But he, yeah, this was towards the end, and he was uh, not the most pleasant person on set, but. Ugh, I hope that as I age, I turn into a nicer version of myself. My mom told me growing up that she thinks as you age, you become more of who you are. So when you meet old, like, mean people, it's just because they've always been mean people <laughs> and it. they've lost their filter. I believe it. So I really hope that I don't become one of those cranky old people. So, anyway, that's who we're dealing with. We don't have to go into every cast member because no. that's not this type of podcast. So let's start with the sacrifice. It's Danae and, uh, or Danai. I don't know how you pronounce it. <laughs> Whatever. Whatever teacher taught you to say it. You have a master's in art history. Well, I've heard. You should know. <laughs> I think it's Danai, but I don't really know because I've heard teachers say it differently. So. Okay, cool. So suck on that buddy and then (laughs) she and her son perseus have been uh condemned to death okay yeah and it was brutal they're put into a box and thrust into the ocean in the movie they are saying just some weird nonsense about her like not being married or whatever and just having a kid with zeus but really the reason uh for this in greek mythology is that it was prophesied that perseus would kill his grandfather Oh, interesting. So that's why he was sacrificed. In general, with Greek mythology, anytime there's a hero, they're probably Zeus's son. Because (laughs) Zeus was like a big old horn dog. He would find the most beautiful woman. Boom. Pregnant. Zeus baby. (laughs) That's just abusing his power. And actually, truly, all of the gods, like most of their stories, any heroes or villains or anything, they're usually half human, half god. Zeus is mad that Danai's dad has killed her because she's his, like, booty call. <laughs> and it's his son. It's mythological So booty he's call. mad, and he demands that the kingdom be destroyed, and he calls on the Kraken. And the Kraken is 
Nordic, right? Yes, definitely so, not a... Yeah, that's for sure. Why is the Kraken in this? Well, as Ray told it, because we did watch a really cool documentary yes. recently on him. As Ray told it, that he just thought it was a great creature. Because I think in Greek mythology... The original like sea creature is like yeah. a big whale or something like that. It's, it's, it's not, not a cool. whale. It's something else, but yeah. And he found this one and realized he could make this more human-like and mm. give it more emotion and it would be more relatable and scary. And so he just adapted. He knew full well and he owned that too. But he said like it just, it just seemed cooler for the story. So yeah. Okay. But that is kind of funny because it has nothing to do with Greek mythology. So anyway, Zeus is peeved. He destroys not only Denai's father, but all of her town too, like her citadel or whatever it is yeah. she was living in. But she and her son Perseus are saved. Their little coffin or whatever floats itself to an island and he grows up there. Boy, does he because he's got all these... Um... We get these flashes of him growing up as a child. He's apparently a, like a horse tamer. That's, my, that's exactly what I caught on. He's got all these cool tricks, man, on a horse where he's uh-huh. like standing on the top like he's in a circus. And yeah. uh, boy, he, I mean, you know what, though? He's probably bored on that island. But what would compel you to stand on a horse? I don't know. You know what? Uh, something to kind of talk about this film in general, especially growing up with it. Mm-hmm. Because we already get this scene. I still to this day, one of my favorite things about this film, and I was completely obsessed with as a kid, was Zeus's hall of all the clay figurines where he basically yeah. has every person as a figure and he can move them around at will. Although it's like a hundred figures. It's still really cool looking. And mm-hmm. he's got a giant Colosseum model and he can place them there and all yeah. this stuff. I you know, because when I saw cool. this, I was really young. I mean, I think the first time I saw this, I was probably like six or seven. Wow. I thought this was just incredible. You thought it was the bee's knees, man. Well, I still do. I still think it's such a cool concept and it's such a great relatable image for a god sitting around, mm-hmm. you know, in Olympus in his temple playing around with his creations. And we do get that scene. The one thing that I will say about the Kraken scene, though, is it does... Okay, we have this on tape. However, I opted to not watch the tape this time because I wanted to see it in high def. Okay. So we streamed it. I, um, to my fellow fans of Clash of the Titans, strongly recommend you never watch it in it was just, high def. Did the, it was did so the Kraken bad. splash everybody to death? Is that what happened? It wasn't even that. The scene that was horrible was when he was being released and there's like a floating <laughs> lever in front of the. I just. Oh, it's. Yeah, Poseidon like unleashes him from his cage. So bad. It it's amplifies. The high def really separates the screens, like mm-hmm. the blue screening and everything that they're doing. It's really bad. And so. It's always been bad, but it was especially. It has bad. been, but it's always been a passable bad. Like, well, it's bad, but I like it because it's Clash of Titans. This one was like noticeably. I'd rather watch it on my VHS copy because it kind yeah. of glosses over that. I mean, this is I, really not good. No, and I will say that <laughs> something that has always troubled me is that they have Poseidon underwater releasing the Kraken, the Nordic Kraken, and he's got, like, they've got this cool effect where they're blowing his hair like it's being hit by the water and he's got, like, mottled lighting, but his hair is obviously dry. Yeah. Like, why didn't they just have him film it underwater? 
I don't know. Like, they're close-up shots. It would take, like, two minutes. Could he not just, like, blink into the abyss for two minutes? I don't know. I did read a little side fact about um, the person they originally wanted to cast was another crusty old, you know, white knight of England and decided oh, yes. this was too much of a bit part for him and passed oh, on it. Okay. I like I didn't even write down the name because I honestly don't care about all those old farts, but That's weird because yeah. you feel like you'd be like, sweet, more money for totally. my Totally. It's look what Lawrence did. He was mm-hmm. like, I will gladly take three hundred thousand dollars for a week. Okay, so uh Perseus grows up. Let's go back to the Hall of Gods. So Maggie Smith, Professor McGonagall, plays Thetis. Yes. She is a goddess. She has a son because gods have sex and make half human, half god babies. Yes. And her son is Calibus. Um, Calibus. Okay, so two things here. First of all, Calibus is not a character in in Greek mythology at all. Um, Second of all, he is a super duper dude. He's supposed to marry Andromeda. And instead, Zeus uh, is mad because he's killed all of the winged horses, except for Pegasus. So Zeus transforms him into like a weird like devil boy. In the swamp, like destined to live in the swamp, who is... That's rude. Well, Zeus is just a a jerk in general. Well, it's rude to kill horses. It is rude. However, this was an extreme kind of decision. I don't know. If somebody killed flying horses... I would be tempted to turn them into swamp devils, too. I honestly, if you were in the, like, Hall of Gods, you would have had the same wrath come Mm -hmm. down on him. I believe it, actually. This transformation scene is so, so cool. It's amazing. Because he takes the clay figure, he sets it down, and then it shifts. does. Yeah, and then it shifts over to the shadow, and the shadow, like, puts its hands up to make horns, but then the horns turn into the body, and we see it all in shadow, like the tail come out. Yeah, it's like a silhouette. I, this is seriously one of my favorite scenes in it's the whole cool. film. It's, it's so cool. well done. Yeah, it's really, really cool. But yeah, he turns him into the swamp creature, and he's like, take that, sucker!" And then uh, the Harry Potter lady's like, oh, dang, and she is not going to let this go. Yes, so... Obviously, she's mad that her son has been turned into a swamp devil. And she responds. (laughs) She responds by retaliating against Perseus. So it's really a lot of passive aggressive God action here. They've got nothing else going on. Why can't they just be peeved at each other? Anyway, so she retaliates against Perseus and sends him to Joppa, where Andromeda lives, where um, Calibus used to live before he became a swamp devil. And he has to, like, go there. So he lays down on the beach and wakes up in Joppa in an amphitheater. I love her, like, reasoning, too. She's like, basically, you've lived this charmed life. Time to face reality. Mm -hmm. And sets him there. And when Zeus finds out, he is so... He already is playing such massive favorites. But he's so irritated that he's like, give him some toys, you know, some special advanced weapons yeah so the gods give him weapons yeah they give him a helmet which Mm -hmm. is awesome my favorite one it's the invisibility helmet which i like drooled over as a child Mm -hmm. Uh, a sword that's super strong and will come into play later Mm -hmm. and then a shield that's got um it's very shiny and that's really it's magical but even though he can speak to him through the shield zeus can i really think the true like skill of the shield is that it's just really shiny yeah but also, in their true tale of Perseus, uh, the shield actually later is embedded with the head of Medusa 
and given to Perseus. So Interesting. It's, yeah, it's like kind of a nod to actual Greek mythology. Okay. Well. But, it, but it's not. So he gets all these tools and he makes a cool new friend uh, because everybody needs a theater major friend. This guy is pretty cool. I, when we were watching it, you mm-hmm. said, I want to dress like him every day of my life. Oh my gosh. Guys, go back and watch his outfits and think about how happy you would be if you lived in this outfit. I honestly think I'd be happy in the outfits of this time period in general because you got two choices. You're either wearing a giant robe with sandals and no underwear. So you're already like, hey, perfect, perfect. Or if it's hot out, you're just wearing like um, a cloth diaper. Oh, there was one. great. There was one scene. In, I think it was when the city uh, was being destroyed by the Kraken. Did you see one dude like leaps out of the way of a wave and he's got on shorts? It's like black shorts with white piping on it. No, did I you didn't. see it? Mm-hmm. Oh, he's just an extra. Like he was un- uncomfortable with the wardrobe, so he put on his shorts. Maybe he's like from Bill and Ted and just kind of never got back in the phone booth. Maybe it's a time traveler. I like that. I like it. Too. So he makes this friend and his name is Ammon. Can I tell you a little bit about Ammon? Yeah, the theater major? Yeah, so he's a poet, and actually, I was like, I don't think I've ever heard of Ammon in Greek mythology. Oh, did you look him up? Yes. All right, I can't wait. So, he's not technically a Greek mythological character. He is, in fact, Egyptian. Interesting. Because the Greeks were like, yeah, gods are real, so your your Egyptian god is real, Ammon. And they had a, like, hybrid, Zeus Ammon, and they also had, like, um, like uh, secondary helpers along the way. And they're all kind of mixed together. So I think Ammon is, like, a, uh, a deity in between. Really? Like do you think he, he is in this film, or do you think he... That's just what the original... Why would you choose that name of yeah. all names? You could have made up something dumb like Calibus if oh, you're going to make up a character. So I think it's a nod to that. But it also goes into Roman mythology. So there's a little bit of a... It's a stew. But the reason I think that he's there is because in the original mythology, Andromeda is from um, Ethiopia. So we're talking about uh, like an African area. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I think she's Ethiopia. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) Anyway. Really interesting. Mm -hmm. I do like, you know, there is a lot of... Um, talk over this film about how there's mixing and and matching of stories but overall I do like that they just tried to bring mythology to life and one of the lasting legacies and we can talk about this at the end too but it is true because it's true for me absolutely is that a lot of people when they think about Greek mythology Clash of the Titans was like one of the real first like significant visual images for pop Mm -hmm. culture and a lot of people think of this movie when they think of greek mythology so it did have a lot of plus even though they were kind of playing fast and loose with it well you know what i think about that um i don't care because greek mythology itself when you start to research it it's all over the place it's being it's been rewritten you're like if you look into it you'll see you know 
this story, it goes this way, or it goes this way, or it goes this way. And these characters, it's like a choose your own adventure (laughs) because it's been told so many times. And then not only through the Greeks, but retold in different ways through the Romans. So it kind of fits right in. Yeah. In that way. Yeah. Okay. So Perseus, he's now in Joppa. He's got a friend. He's got some magic tools. What does he do? Forgets all the magic tools when he hears about a beautiful babe. Pops on that invisibility <laughs> helmet. First thing any dude would do. Well, yeah. he's been on an island. He's like, oh, totally. wait, what? He's like, let me get this straight. Apparently the most beautiful woman in the world is just hanging out. And I have an invisibility helmet. I'm going to go sneak <laughs> I got, a peek. I got a great idea. Yeah. And the poet's like, that is a great idea. But he- If I was only a few years younger... So he totally goes and just spies on her uh, sleeping. She is very beautiful. Mm -hmm. And he just stares at her for a while. And he says something really weird about, I now know my destiny. Yeah. He's like instantly in love. What if she sat up in her bed and had Fran Drescher's voice and said like, spewed some sort of like racist or like horrible, (laughs) like whatever you'd be like oh i was wrong about my destiny but she looks so good when she was asleep i don't know if you lived on an island with no access to any women i think you'd be like i'll forgive the bubba teeth don't talk (laughs) go back to sleep andromeda sleep andromeda sleep it's okay because he's a creepy perv in a helmet he's watching her sleep also along his way he's learned that andromeda has now been cursed because calibus is a swamp devil. She is cannot marry somebody until they solve a riddle. This is important in the I end. love this scene so much. So this is another scene that really stuck out to me as a kid growing up was the double person who we actually, this is a total nod to this. I don't know if I ever told you this, um, but we did a short film for uh, an installation that we did together mm-hmm. years ago. It was this art installation at gallery. And I, I shot this film and In it, there's a scene where I create my own doppelganger and I walk away from myself. And this was completely an homage to this scene in Clash of the Titans when herself gets up out of the bed and walks into this cage for the vulture because that made such an impression on me. And I thought it was so incredibly cool to see like a different version of yourself just get up and walk away. Dude, the whole concept of doppelgangers freaks me out. I love this scene in general, though, where a version of her goes into a giant cage where a huge vulture mm-hmm. picks her up and takes her away. Like, what? That's so cool. It's very cool. It's very cool. And so he watches know, it. as he's like creeping on sleep in Andromeda. She like splits, gets into the vulture cage and floats off. And he's like, got to know where that's going. <laughs> totally. So he goes back to his poet friend and his poet friend's like, Ah, uh, yeah, that sucks. And he's like, "How do we, how do we follow her? How do we see where Golden Cage goes?" And they're like hemming and hawing. And poet friend goes, "Wait, Pegasus." Now, <laughs> I'm going to tell you that in Greek mythology, Pegasus actually springs from the blood of a beheaded Medusa. I did know that. Yeah. Interesting. So, yeah. So they're. And it is from the story of Perseus. It's just not in the correct order. Right. Okay. So anyway, he and his poet bud uh, find, capture, and befriend Pegasus. That Pegasus scene, though, that's... 
I mean, that was such a moment. And this is also one of the only scenes that I can definitely pinpoint um, because we learned this in the documentary that when when Ray needed help animating because he had just gotten Mm -hmm. so much that he had to try and tackle. There were two young animators brought on and one of them was put in charge of the Pegasus scene. The other one we'll talk about later. Mm-hmm. But I actually thought the Pegasus scene was oh. really cool looking. And um, who was it in the documentary? John Landis, I think, was saying he was visiting Ray while this was being yeah. shot in London. Um, because this was actually shot. Well, they, they was shot in a soundstage at Pinewood Studios in London. And then all the rest was shot on location in Spain, Italy, and, and Malta. But yeah. Anyway, John Landis was visiting Ray and said it was crazy because these young animators were doing the Pegasus scene and they had spent all day long to basically get about three seconds worth of material. But it's worth it because I think the Pegasus animation is some of the best animation in this whole film. It's so beautiful. The attention to detail, the like physicality, like you can see where they were attempting to recreate reality like the the muscles underneath the flesh it's beautiful and there's some really cool secondary scenes too like how he captures the pegasus is that mm-hmm. he puts his invisibility helmet on and then lassos him mm-hmm. we get the lasso walking around you know invisible that's fine but that's easy peasy my favorite scene in this whole like sequence is as he lassos the Pegasus and it's kind of pulling against him and mm-hmm. reacting, it's just a lasso because he's invisible still. So all you see is like a pulled lasso. And then it kind of pulls him and it knocks his helmet off and mm-hmm. he slowly comes back into form holding the lasso. Yeah. It just looks so cool. And I, as like somebody who has worked on like animation, I just wouldn't even have thought about that. Like, that subtlety of a scene didn't need to happen. You could Mm -hmm. have just had him walk up and lasso him invisible and then gone on. But to be able to show him coming back into reality of being visible again, ah, just a beautiful scene. I just, I I really think that was worth mentioning because I I just think it's it's so well done. I think that's right. And also, Harryhausen and several other people in the documentary we watched talk about how it wasn't about recreating reality exactly because I think there is something fantastic about the way that that type of artistry takes you out of the movie in a way Mm -hmm. to ponder how much energy went into the creation of that particular scene. So it kind of invites you uh, as a viewer to try and understand how much work goes into a movie, not just actors spewing words at each other, but it it makes you go, how did they do this? How is this possible? And I think there's something about that that obviously inspired like legions of other creators, but even in like an everyday person, just that moment where you go, what? How? How did they do this? And you try and puzzle it out in your head. It's, it's awesome. Yeah, I do think there is the documentary. If, if you guys have not seen it, I strongly recommend yeah. it. Um, and it's just it's streaming for free on Netflix, I think, is where we saw it. Mm-hmm. And it's got interviews with every like major director you can imagine. Steven Spielberg and Peter Jackson and, 
Guillermo del Toro, and I mean, the list just goes on and on. I, I will say, though, um, it's almost entirely men. There's one, yeah, one that's woman. That's really, yeah, that's unfortunate. But the documentary is good because it does really tackle the CGI versus practical effects. Yeah. And that comment that you made and the observation is true about... CGI really everybody's like oh, well it's computer and if I if I learned the program I could probably do that or whatever mm-hmm. but stop motion it really forces you to realize somebody had to tediously go over and move every single frame of every yeah. single second and that's why there's something very interesting is when Ray Harryhausen does a film this is very unique is that regardless of who the director was it tends to be a Harryhausen film, he, not he, the director's film. Yeah, he plays a directorial part in his scenes. And he does. He's always on set. He's always directing. And he does direct a lot of the, the sequences and stuff. But I do think that that speaks volumes to the influence he had and the power that he had over this. And that um, to watch a Harryhausen film, if you grew up with his films, you can accept it. Mm-hmm. If you are new to this and this is the first time watching it, it's going to be like, um, okay, this just looks like a weird old cheap film. Yeah. But at the time, this was really you have to contextualize so it. much fun to watch. Absolutely. Okay, so let's get back to the film. Pegasus has dropped Perseus um, behind, like quite behind or right behind. Um, Andromeda in Calabas' swamp world. Yeah. His helmet at some point gets lost. It's not quite yet, but I'm, I'm afraid I'll forget to mention that because <laughs> yeah. it doesn't come back. Anyway, he, f- like, secretly follows Andromeda, and she's kind of, like, somehow sleepwalking almost, but is also aware. It's a little strange. But she goes to Calabas, and he gives her the riddle for her next suitor. So every suitor who comes to propose to Andromeda has to answer a riddle. Riddle's always changing. When they get it wrong, they're burned at the stake for whatever reason. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) A bit extreme. (laughs) So it's new riddle time. He shows it to her and she's like, cool, got it. Um, But like she cries and she's so beautiful and her tears are like little tiny diamonds sliding down her face. She's just (laughs) whatever. Goes back. But... Um, as she leaves, Calibus sees in the in the sand these footprints oh, appear. Yeah, so cool. So cool. And it's it's Perseus following her away. Calibus attacks and he and Perseus battle. Perseus is the victor, cuts off the hand, and he shows up the next day as Cassiopeia, who is Andromeda's mother, is Saying, is there anybody here who's going to try and marry my daughter? Anybody? Bueller? Bueller? (laughs) And uh, it's like looking like nobody's going to show because everybody's going, well, we don't want to be burned. She's (laughs) real pretty, but no thanks. There are other pretty people. So through the door, Struts Perseus. He comes up. He's like, yo, Tell me this riddle. And she does. <laughs> he is pretty cocky. He's got the Mick he's, Jagger lips, so he's kind of got the cock walk, too. Yeah, he's got those <laughs> lips that are so full that it looks like they're splitting apart. Yeah. <laughs> but he he comes up, gets the riddle, solves the riddle, and he's like, and boom, here's the hand of uh, Calibus. Yeah, instead of like dropping the mic, he's yeah. like, and here's, let me give you a hand. <laughs> 
will you take my hand like I took Calibus's hand? Uh, there's so much potential for bad puns. Okay. Boy, he didn't have a sense of humor, though. So he says the curse is lifted. Calibus, he's missing one hand. He comes and speaks to the uh, statue of his mother, Thetis. And he's like, I need vengeance, Thetis. Then Thetis, the goddess, comes down and she's like, oh, guess what? You did this to Calibus. Uh, Andromeda is going to have to be sacrificed to the Kraken in 30 days. Cool, bye. And so Perseus wants to, obviously, uh, kill the Kraken. And so that gives 30 days for um, Perseus to figure out how to kill the Kraken. He quickly learns that the way there is through Medusa's head. Because Medusa's head will kill anything, even a giant sea creature that is Nordic. So he goes on a quest and Andromeda tags along. They like, they get their crew and they head out. They roll out because they're going to find the three Gorgon sisters, three witches who in Greek mythology have one eyeball and one tooth that they share for all three. <laughs> and they alone know the directions to find Medusa. So what did you think of these? They're cool. They're really cool. They they all have like weird made over faces, like the makeup to make them look yeah. eyeless. Ugh, but so before creepy. we get to them, we do get introduced to a brand new character. Oh yes. So Zeus was pretty peeved about uh, Perseus losing his special helmet, mm-hmm. and immediately demands that he gets another special little gift because mm-hmm. his special boy only gets the nicest toys for Christmas. And looks around and all the gods are like, what, what, what? One of them has an owl on their shoulder and he's like, you, give give my boy your owl. And she's like, this <laughs> owl that I've had for all of eternity. The uh, sweet owl that a kiss on its beak? Yeah, F you. And so she actually gets a mechanical owl made in replacement of it. Which is pretty sweet. It is pretty sweet. I want it. And everybody loves this owl that's seen this movie. This is really pretty awesome because yeah. it comes in with a lot of... Um, personality it's got pizzazz yeah it's hooting and hollering and it's got uh, it's the comic relief of the movie and was 100 percent intentional to cash in on the r2d2 craze of star wars that had just come out a couple years earlier that's so, weird yeah it's not though it, it really it's pretty clear but yeah we get boobo um the mechanical m- owl? yeah the golden owl who i loved as a kid. Oh, yeah. Still love today. Yes. So, yeah. So, we've got this new member of the pack before they go up to the oracles and see these crazy witches with sharing a glass orb eye. And this scared me as a kid. It's creepy, it for sure. It is pretty creepy, yeah. So, he takes their eyeball from them and is like, yeah, you can have your eyeball back when you tell me where to find Medusa. He's totally jocking it up right here where he's like... Takes the nerds, you know, yeah. cassette tape and is like tossing it to his other yeah. whatever jock friend. He's like, what? You want this Jump back? for it. Jump for it. Jump for it. I'm going to pants you and push you out into the cheerleaders. Yeah. He finally gets what he wants, though. It's where to find Medusa. And they tell him. And so now we've got like the story's going to move that way. He's got to go get Medusa. Yeah. He heads to her island. There are some editing errors here that are pretty weird. Like he... Leaves his buds on mainland to go for an island, and then suddenly they're all there. It's weird. It doesn't really matter, though, but this is um, probably one of my favorite scenes in the whole film. The one that stood out for me. 
and I can see why, because like I later, the the things I'm drawn to in life, this makes perfect sense. Mm-hmm. But the the ferry that he has to take, yeah, the river sticks situation has this grim reaper skeleton creature. Mm-hmm. <sighs> this terrified me as a kid, but also fascinated me, and I've always loved it. It's because it's cool. like if this film ever got semi metal, <laughs> this is the metal scene. Is the skeleton like fairy guy? So yeah, there's some editing errors, but also this scene's totally cool. So they end up on Medusa's island. There's evidence of her power, which is that she's so hideous with her snake head that you, if you look at her, you turn to stone, as we all know. And so they are looking for her, but also not trying to see her. It's a complicated process, I guess. Finally, oh, she's also got a rattlesnake tail. She's so cool. She reveals herself. I I just think that, you know, with Harryhausen, you just think of figures, whether it's the Sinbad movies, uh, Jason and the Argonauts, Mm -hmm. whatever, creature features, everything kind of stands out. And the Medusa from... Oh, yeah. You know, Clash of the Titans is a big one. And it was cool in the documentary to see him talking about how he created it. How he moved the eyeball with eyeballs with an eraser of an, an eraser <laughs> of a pencil. Yeah, it was great. And how he made everything way more complicated. But yeah, it was scary. Adding that little rattlesnake tail and stuff. Oh. Yeah. And he also talks about how he had to move each snake on her head independently. Yeah. So when you watch it again, like think about all of the technical details that had to go into play and those are all adjustments made by human hands it's fascinating yeah thousands and thousands of adjustments for a couple seconds of footage and he even talked about how he'd be working and then you know you've got like all these snakes on a head and the body itself and keep in mind the lighting was so great too because it's reflecting the fire that's like a flickering firelight and he would say like if he got a phone call He'd get distracted, take the phone call, and then when he went back to keep animating, he'd be like, oh, crap. Where was like, I? where was I with all these? And so if you see a little jump in a snake or something, it's because he was distracted for a second. And I, yeah. I do think that's funny. But yeah, we get, this is like the iconic scene. And this also terrified me as a kid was yeah. the Medusa scene was so scary. He uses his reflective shield so he can look at her through the reflection and spot her that way. Instead of looking directly at her, which would turn him to stone. Speaking of the shiny shield, yes. I do have an interesting story. Okay. And that is that uh, Harry Hamlin, who plays Perseus, he just happened to have done his thesis on mythology while he was going to Yale, uh, which isn't a surprise. And he really had a stink about this whole scene because in the original script, she was supposed to be beheaded by the shield. And he was like, wait, 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 wait. That doesn't happen in real life. So he's cool with the crack and not even existing. He's okay with throwing everything else aside. <laughs> right. But uh, he really, he took a stand on this. And you'll find out why later. I'll tell you why later. But basically, he had this big freak out about this scene to the point of saying, find a new actor unless you let me cut off her head with a sword. Because in mythology... He cuts off her head with a sword, and you cannot cut it off with a shield. That's not true to how the story happened. Also, how do you make a shield that sharp? Okay, well, it gets better. Not only did he flip out about it, but apparently when he read the script before even filming, this is how far back it goes. He said, 
I'll do the film, but you have to change the scene to a sword severing because that's how the story really happened. And the producers were like, yo, yo, sure, whatever. So the day of this scene. Why? Because he was such a big get? Right. Exactly. This was his first like major lead role. Okay. Anyway, so we're on set. This is happening for the, the, they're shooting the scene and he gets a little notice from the filmmakers and they're like, hey, bud, sorry to tell you this, but... We just got noticed that we can't do the sword severing. We have to go back to the original shield because we'll get an X rating and kids can't watch this. It's too gruesome for kids to watch. What? Yeah. I feel like a shield beheading versus sword beheading is much more gruesome. Well, he completely flipped out over this and was like, find yourself a new actor. Went, locked himself in his trailer. Oh my gosh, actors are the worst. (laughs) So bad. And refused to come out. He tells a story that they then unplugged the electricity so he couldn't get any heat, refused to give him food, and were like, you're ruining everything, come out. Uh And he said, sue me, I don't have anything anyway. I'm not doing it unless I get to cut off her head with a sword. This was like a big deal for him. Okay. Eventually, after hours and hours, people were visiting him and like trying different things. He convinced everybody that was like, look, the whole reason why Perseus has the sword is to cut off Medusa's head, not with a shield, but with the sword. And they were finally like, you're right, gave in and lo and behold, we get the scene that we ended up with. And it was this huge huge theater drama to oh get to gosh. that and i love it i do love you, everything about it do you think that day that somebody <laughs> had like not given him the attention he needed and he's I totally. like, like or, they were like like drooling over Lawrence olivier being in the film and he was like well guess who else is gonna throw their weight around yeah i or either like, sever her head the way i want or i'm walking or he called his mom and she's like, oh, I can't really talk right now. And he was like, what? <laughs> okay, well, anyway, I, I just had to tell you that story. Hashtag actors. Where are we? Well, we can skip ahead. There's some cool scorpion scenes. Yeah. Basically, what we need to get to is that... The Kraken hath been released. Andromeda well. is chained to a rock. Everybody's like, okay, we're going to be splashed to death if we don't... You know, let the Kraken have Andromeda. Yeah. But as a an actor would be, he's fashionably late. In comes Perseus. He's got the head bag, you know, with Medusa's head. <laughs> yeah. He's ready for it. Dude, you want to know a great other little fun fact about the original script? Okay. Originally, the Kraken tore apart Pegasus. <laughs> And they were like, you can't do that. That's like That's... killing every little kid's dream. Exactly. And they were like, you can't do that. So that got changed. Yeah, because Bubo, <laughs> Bubo actually saves Pegasus. Yeah, it is pretty cool. Uh, and it looks like Andromeda's death is imminent. The Kraken's been released. Also, the Kraken, what would you say? Mammal? Yeah, I would he's think. He's not a mammal. He's an underwater creature and he's scaled. He's a lizard. Guess what? Hmm. He has a belly button. Does he? He does. Why does he have a belly button? That bothered me so much. He is <laughs> wow. not a mammal. Wow, laser eyes on those details. <sighs> that made me so angry. That's the takeaway from this okay. one. Okay. 
The Kraken should not have a belly button. I don't even know what he is. They're mixing their cultures, but they shouldn't add a belly button. Oh, and um, what's his face? Swamp Monster got killed in the process, too. Yeah, Calibus died. Who cares? I mean, we, we really we don't have time to go over all that. But we're, we're, at we're the, skating past we're at the, Yeah, we're at the cool scene right now. Pegasus and, and Perseus. Perseus, they arrive fashionably late. And Perseus is like, hey, I got something for you, Kraken. And then he pulls out Medusa's head. Mm-hmm. Oh, this scene's so cool. Yes. And the Kraken turns to stone. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just great. I mean, what a cool ending. Although, I can't go past this scene without giving you this week's fun fact. What? 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 <laughs> So, we've already talked about Perseus's um, flair for the dramatic Uh, in real life. Are we talking about Perseus or Harry? Are they, they're mutually exclusive or are they not? I don't know. Okay. Well, Harry, a.k.a. Perseus, a.k.a. Harry. In this film, he's Harry, A-J-I-R-Y. Oh, boy, is he. Okay. So, well, he's kind of waxy more than Harry. Well, he's got the mop top. Oh, he does have... Yeah, those locks are nice. Okay. So, for this week's fun fact, the scene where he holds up the head Mm -hmm. is, like, super iconic for this film. Cool. Guess who takes full credit for that scene? Please tell me he does. Oh, boy, does he. What? Okay. As it's told in his mind... uh, This is probably real, actually. I I have no reason to doubt it, but although Hmm. it's just really funny, is that... He recommended that that should happen because he was obsessed with this sculpture when he was studying at Yale of Perseus holding the head of Medusa that Cellini had done. Yeah. Back in the day. It's like the most iconic sculpture of Medusa. So that's one reason why he was obsessed with like severing the head with a sword because he was like, I have to. But wait. Because of the Cellini piece? No, just because he was so obsessed with the story and, like, everything about it. But because of the sculpture, he was like, we cannot do the scene without me recreating the sculpture. Okay. And all the makers of the film were like, no, that's stupid. That's pandering. And he was like, nope, we should do it. (laughs) They're worried about pandering at this point? (laughs) Right. I know. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, so they shut him down well. One day on set, he's hanging out with the, with the bag and the head in it. Mm-hmm. Nobody is around except for one person. And that is one of the cinematographers with film in the camera. Oh. And he says, don't tell anybody. I'm in costume. He had his loincloth and all that. He said, I'm going to pull this head out. Hold it up. You shoot it. Don't tell anybody. And they actually shot the scene without anybody knowing. And he said it took like five seconds. And that when he saw the final cut, there is the shot of him holding up the head. Oh, my god. Which goodness. later became like the shot of the film. There you go. <laughs> the more you know, a rainbow. Oh. Actors. Okay. <laughs> so anyway, the Kraken's dead. Medusa's dead. Perseus finally gets to... Get laid. Hook it up with Andromeda because she had to, even though they'd been married, remain a virgin for the Kraken, which, okay, why would that matter to an actual giant Kraken? I know, he would destroy her. What does that matter? (laughs) First of all, what does it matter in general? But what does it matter to a Kraken with a belly button? (laughs) 
Wow. Okay. <laughs> All right. What we need to take away from this is that Pegasus and Bubo are okay. Yeah, Pegasus does not get ripped to shreds by the Kraken like the original script called for. And then let's, you know what? Let's top this off with... Make them all constellations. Yeah. As though they've explained history to us. <laughs> yeah, totally. Well, that's how it ends. I I love this film so much. It's corny, it's cheesy, but it's also incredibly oh, yeah. awesome. It's great. I really, really like this film. I, I think that the animation, if you're new to it, it's kind of like I was talking about Goonies. Mm-hmm. If you didn't grow up with Goonies, I don't think you'll really get it. It's, there's certain films that no, you just no, have to... No, that's not true. I didn't grow up with Goonies. I saw it when I was a teenager. That's still, you saw it as a teen even. I would say, like, if you were an adult and I showed you Clash of the Titans, it would be very similar to Sinbad or Jason the Argonauts. Like, it would look very aged and old, and I'd be like, well, I don't get why this is any any more special than the others. Also, by the time this had come out, like, uh, we had already seen Star Wars, and even though Star Wars was a low-budget film, effects had started to change. Mm-hmm. And I, we talked about this earlier. I think Ray kind of knew, too, that this does feel very old-fashioned. And I think the people that enjoyed it when it came out, like the critics, just loved Harryhausen's animation. And we're like, this is awesome. Because it really was awesome. Yeah, and I think in 81, it was probably still pretty relevant and pretty impressive. It was cool. Um, there were critics at the time, though, that were also like, we've moved past this. Like, Aww. yeah. So Be nice to the old guy. <laughs> right. But overall, it did really well. It opened on June 12th, 1981. Okay. You know what it opened up against? What? <laughs> Just to, like, put it in perspective. Raiders of the Lost Ark. Oh. Came in second at the box office, though, against it. Wow. It had a $15 million budget. Oh, I want to watch Raiders. I know, me too. Uh, it pulled in U.S. $41 million. Calm down. And then worldwide, it went on to do $70 million. Jeez. I can't even imagine what it did in, like, VHS sales after yeah. that. But it did... Uh, Pretty good. They did all right. And I would say a lot of that is due to two people in particular. Ray Harryhausen and Sir Lawrence Olivier. I feel like every actor probably patted themselves on the back for this movie. I do too. Uh, You know what though? It was well done. It got, you know, we saw the remake in 2010. I I don't think that had to happen. I have totally blocked it from my mind. I know that I have seen it. Yeah. I was trying to reflect (laughs) upon it. Couldn't pull up a single detail. And that, yep, that's exactly why this is why (laughs) this film needed to happen. Didn't need to be remade. No. All right. Well, that's it. That's what we got. It's definitely Laser Graves approved. (laughs) Go watch it. If you haven't, if you have, go revisit it. It's so much fun. And as far as that genre is concerned, uh, top tier. Yeah. Yeah, Absolutely. Well, if you like what you heard... Um, please continue to spread the word. Tell your friends, your family, your grandparents. They probably loved it. Tell that weird person you met at work. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yep. And uh, if you want to follow us, we are anywhere and everywhere you get podcasts. We're on uh, Spotify and Podbean and iTunes and all that stuff. But we're also at uh, lasergraves.com. Mm-hmm. You can also listen to any of our back episodes. If you want to follow us on Instagram, we're at Lasergraves. 
Our personal sites, I'm at death at 33 RPM. I'm at Mariah Rose Wimmer. And that's what we got for you this week. And we will see you next week. Bye. Bye.